Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Rewilding, reclaiming our sovereignty, the heart of human domestication and its link to death. Let's talk heavy topics that lighten your long-term load. This is episode number 109. Welcome, friend. Ah, I'm glad you're listening to this show and this episode. More than almost any other time, I can say with confidence that you will be richly rewarded by the conversation I'm about to share with you. I know that I've been richly rewarded by the almost 500,000 downloads of this show, and uh, it's not from uh, the reward, that is. It's not from my gleefully non-existent sponsorship and advertisement income. I don't have that. I like it that way. Uh, for whatever reason, though, uh, the stats that I can measure for Smart and Simple Matters, they're actually way down through these first eight months of 2016, and I have no freaking idea why. Some days I feel like I should know why, and maybe I should even do something about it. But today and most days, I'm just content to press record and know that what I and my guests have to say is worth your time. It's worth your consideration, and very often, it's worth your action. Today's episode, it is an exemplary example, and I think I might have just said the same thing twice. (laughs) Anyway, it's doing double duty in my quest to unintentionally spread alliteration across your nation. No, I'm just getting stupid. As you can tell, I'm in a great mood. I am always in a great mood whenever I have the chance to listen to and especially participate in a conversation with my guest. Um, and, you know, I'm not cut out to be a hip-hop artist, obviously. It's probably a good thing. Um, it's even something that uh, my guest and I for this episode discuss later on. His name is Daniel Vitalis of DanielVitalis.com. Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, Vitalis, V-I-T-A-L-I-S.com. He's one of my favorite podcasters by far, by far. I could just give you a full spreadsheet of his podcast episodes that I've curated. It seems like Every second or maybe even third one makes it into my podcast episode, Greatest Hits. They're that consistently good. The concepts that he's about to share with you on rewilding, becoming a sovereign being, how we domesticate ourselves, even perhaps more than we've domesticated other animals, these kinds of concepts, this kind of nourishment has been transformational for me. Uh, how I've integrated his teachings, the wisdom he passes along from his podcast guests or mentors, I have to say it's still a bit rough. It's still uneven, but I know with certainty that my life and the vitality of my family has been markedly improved in the past two years since I first heard of him and thought, who who is this guy? Wow, I want more. So here, if you may not know that you want more, but I want to at least give you an initial taste, a morsel or three or four of what you're in for over the next 50 minutes or so. We discussed the blind and unintentional domestication of humans over the centuries and millennia. 
uh, how to see yourself and act as a sovereign being, the difference between natural wild water and processed water. Yes, most water that is available is processed. Uh, We also talked about how alternative medicine, it's actually the true medicine, not modern medicine. Uh, Why we free up our life force when we make peace with death. And goodness, there's, there's so much more here. It's just, you'll read between the lines yourself, but it's the lines, the threads that Daniel weaves between all these great stories, analogies, and metaphors, this deep understanding of the prime and human spirits. Holy smokes. Uh, wow. You're probably going to want to follow along or check out the show notes. If you do, they are at joelzeslowski.com slash SASM109. Man, I am so stoked to have you listen to my chat with Daniel. So let's explore together with this expert guide. Here we go. When it comes to getting revved up, breaking taboos, and mixing up science with real world, I'm actually out there experience. Few people excite me more than my guest for this episode, Daniel Vitalis. I'm one of many thousands who count his Rewild Yourself podcast as one of their favorites, and he's the founder of SirThrival.com, makers of quality supplements, among other things. He's also a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur in the sphere of human health, strategic living, and gaining back our sovereignty through rewilding. Come on and camp with us at the crossroads of ancestral health and lifestyle design. And Daniel, welcome, welcome to this great chat we're about to have. Joel, thank you so much. And that was a very lovely interview. I think I'm going to maybe use some of that material. Yeah, feel free. This is all on copyright. I just love to put good things out into the world, and I love to feature people who I think are personally amazing, but also others uh, also view it the same way, and you are absolutely in that category. People are going to probably suspect as much as we start to get a little bit into your backstory. So let's, let's start where I like to start a conversation, it's something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. So there's something unique about your environment as a youth, maybe one or two experiences that you had growing up that has a big impact on who you are now? You know, uh, obviously, and I'm sure you find that <laughs> across the board, but my background, I think, is uniquely important for me to be able to kind of carry this message forward because I don't know that if I'd had a more standard upbringing, if I'd be able to um, bring the kind of information to light that I've been able to. Um, my background is one of a, like a lot of trauma and a lot of, I don't want to say physical abuse, but sort of um, was a, not, not a pleasant upbringing. And I guess what's unique about it is my mom had a um, family of, she was one of nine, a big Italian family. Um, but eight of the brothers and sisters were really part of her family. And my mom was like the black sheep and she was basically ostracized and kind of kicked out of the family. And my father, who is a really interesting guy, but I don't really know. So my father's a PhD in um, paleontology, but we don't have a relationship. And he walked away from uh, my, from me and my family when it was probably about – I'd say when I was about one, but he would come back and visit back and forth from time to time. Um, last time I saw him, I was five. So I uh, kind of grew up without a dad, and I grew up without my grandmothers and grandfathers and extensive lists of aunts and uncles and cousins. And uh, my mom's got a lot of mental illness, and um, I do have a brother and sister, but we all got scattered. And so I grew up sort of raising myself. And I always was this oppositionally defiant character. I never wanted to take part in what I saw in society around me. It always felt like 
People were selling themselves out. People were choosing things that they weren't morally aligned with. Um, it felt like all of the, the rules around me were so oppressive to what was my innate nature. I felt like the world around me was spiritually suppressive. And so I, because we already were this really unique, you know, essentially I was alone. I kind of found ways to slip through the cracks and avoid doing what a lot of people think they have to do, including a lot of the schooling that is really typical. So um, one unique thing, I had a stepdad for a little bit and he brought a little money into the family. And when I was able to go to some private schools till about fifth grade and after that, I didn't really go to school. So I didn't really go to junior high school, didn't really go to high school and managed to self-educate through my own uh, deep academic interest and then in my own experience just experientially. And so I come to this kind of place where I'm at today and you know you know you mentioned my podcast and I you know I found myself interviewing PhDs and academics and you know P, you know primatologists and all these like really interesting well-educated characters and I'm this person who comes from such a dramatically different background and I've been able to swim in those waters a bit but I wasn't trained classically and it gives me a really unique perspective on human wildness that I think can only come from a wild child. And uh, so I'd say as far as a background goes, you know, I'm a survivor of a lot of childhood trauma and um, I raised myself, uh, sort of like being raised by wolves, if you will. And so I think when it comes to talking about human wildness, it would be difficult to do that if I'd come through classical academic training and um, a more standard um, domesticated background. So while I didn't grow up truly wild, I did kind of grow up a bit feral and it's been a lot to recover from. And um, and sometimes it's a little embarrassing too, I'll say, you know, just to be really forthright. It's like sometimes when I'm talking to somebody with a with a really substantial background, like recently I was talking to the primatologist who trained with, you know, and worked with Jane Goodall and it was like, you know, what's your background, Daniel? It's like, well, I don't really want to say. <laughs> but I think it does give me a unique ability to do what I do, which is talk to people about how they can um, actually start to break away from so many of the societal norms that have been really oppressive for them throughout their lives. Yeah. Well, I know you said that sometimes it's a little bit embarrassing, and you've gone into it in your own podcast about some of the backstory. I don't know how much or if any we need to get into here, but you're talking about other people having domesticated backgrounds. And the... Uh, it sounds like you, you mentioned we, as in you and your mom. I know you moved around once every year or two growing up. Uh, but you also mentioned I a lot, that even though your mom was there, at least physically present a lot of times, it was just kind of you. So who or what surrounded you until, say, you moved along and started charting a new course in your life? No, well, honestly, not a lot of people. I mean, my mom is uh, kind of agoraphobic and she's also, uh, like I said, has struggled with a lot of mental illness in her life. And so my mom's, you know, when I was growing up, she was spending a lot of time just sort of depressed in her bed in a dark room, you know, and it was like, I just sort of had so many interests. I've always been somebody who really wanted to engage life and in particular wanted to engage learning. So what surrounded me was like my library, you know, prior to the internet, it was like going to the library. It was taking out books. It was taking out, you know, this is the days of, of cassette tapes, you know, so I would, I would get cassette tapes, you know, different inspirational things. I'd find kind of, I think the, probably the, one of the most influential characters in my life as a kid was Tony Robbins. Cause I found his, like one of his, you know, mind power cassette tape courses and Deepak Chopra. I remember he had like cassette tape courses that I could get at the library and things like that. So I got 
an opportunity to listen to people because you know now we live in this environment which is filled with internet gurus you know and i get to count myself amongst those kind of characters but you know in the 80s there wasn't as much of that right you only had a few prominent characters who could really make a name for themselves well, and one so thing i want to say one thing that differentiates you is you're not asking for guru status some no. people might bestow <laughs> it upon you but you are yeah, actively yeah. not looking for that not no, that like, say uh, Deepak Chopra or Tony Robbins are, but um, what some people are projecting upon you versus what you are taking on yourself. I, I notice that there's a very big difference between the two. So your caveats, I appreciate them, but at the same time, um, you've also established yourself as somebody who is incredibly well spoken and knows what you're talking about, regardless of your credentials, regardless of any letters before or after your name. So just yeah. want to acknowledge that and honor it. Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. And I am not interested in guru status. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. I really love the idea of people becoming empowered and realizing. And that's what my background taught me was that um, that not only can I survive on my own and actually really thrive on my own, but that um, a lot of the training that people do and a lot of the credentialing they get simply indoctrinates them into one paradigm or one way of seeing things. And I think one of the things that's really characterized my work is this idea of human domestication and uniquely somehow that in the way that I share it's fallen to me to bring that message forward because really nobody else brings that message forward um, in its fullness as I, that I've yet encountered except a couple of colleagues that I've worked with. And the idea essentially is that it's kind of like if you were a poodle growing up in uh, you know, the American Kennel Club kind of world, coming to the realization that you were actually bred out of wolves you know, would be really, it'd just be difficult to come to that. Mm-hmm. If your world is dog shows and dog foods and being in kennels and going to the groomers, realizing that you're actually a wolf would be difficult. And I think that's really difficult for people who study anthropology, who study uh, paleo uh, botany or paleo anthropology or, you know, paleo kind of all this, all this paleo stuff now that people are studying. They're studying it from the perspective of being a domesticated person. So it's like a poodle studying wolves. And sometimes it's difficult for them to sort of see the totality of the subject. So I do think that my background has uniquely given me that ability. And when you study um, ancient people, and the reason I do that, of course, is to sort of understand our biology better so we can understand our needs, not just our biological needs, but also our our sociological needs. Um, When you study that, you come to the determination that until very recently in history, there wasn't hierarchy of individuals. And so every person was a sovereign. And so to circle back to this idea of guru status, I think guru now is a different term than it was 10 or 15 years ago, because before it really meant like a spiritual leader and it had like real significance in Indian traditions. Of course, India, I mean, Indian, I mean, India. Mm -hmm. Um, But today it's more of like a kind of a thought leader, I think is how we use it, you know, now. Um, But in the past, people were all sovereigns. And even when a tribe, let's say, had a leader, that leader didn't lord it over people. In fact, that would be a death sentence or at least they would be asked to step down or be shunned or be isolated for that kind of behavior because um, there, we didn't have the sort of egomaniacal, ego-driven culture that we have today. So in the past, every person spoke for themselves. Every person made decisions for themselves. They might go along with the group because they agreed with the direction of the group, but it wasn't like today. So one of the reasons I don't want guru status is simply because I want to kind of see the world rewilded. In order to do that, everybody's going to have to really step up and speak for themselves. And so again, back to my childhood, it really taught me how to do that, uh, how to advocate for myself, how to speak for myself, how to find the information I was looking for. And it wasn't biased by the school um, system 
uh, of the United States, which is essentially um, or could be seen as a domestication indoctrination, if you will. Yeah. Well, I wonder how many people realize that they are selling themselves out, that they are spiritually empty. I'm sure you encounter a lot of folks who they're just going along with the script, right? They're, they mm-hmm. might, you, you or me, someone else might see them as sleepwalking through life. And mm-hmm. there could be a better way, a different way, at least an alternative that could be presented to them. They're blind to it right now. So how much of this is people actively making the choice that they want to give up their sovereignty in terms of the kinds of food that they eat or the kind of community that they live in versus just having blinders on and not even realize that there's another paradigm? It's actually the paradigm that we had for 99.9999% of our human existence, and we could have that again. How do you get in front of somebody and say, hey, guess what? There's this thing. It's called humanity. Would you like to participate in it? (laughs) You know, there's some challenging things going on there because of domestication, which is an actual biological Um, it's an actual, it's almost like an evolutionary thing, but it's a little bit different. So when we think of evolution, we're talking about natural selection, but when we talk about domestication, we're talking about something called artificial selection. And so, um, famous study in Russia done with foxes, gray, silver foxes, really cool study. They wanted to understand dog domestication from wolves. So they used a related species, a related canid species. They used silver foxes. And what they did was over the course of 50 years, and this is an ongoing experiment to this day. They would uh, take silver foxes, which were wild and averse to humans, and they were breeding them. And the ones that were most uh, amicable to people, they would uh, breed those together. And over the course of 50 years, they've developed wild silver foxes into pet foxes that are much more like dogs. But along with that comes this whole suite of changes they call domestication syndrome. And with that are things like... um, a curlier tail and floppier eel ears and a, a more fun and pleasant disposition and a desire to be around people. And really what you end up with is a sort of puppy version of an adult animal. This is called neoteny or sometimes called pedomorphism. And what happens, we've learned, is when you domesticate something, you tend to bring its juvenile characteristics into adulthood. Now, it's not just that some people are asleep, it's that they've actually been bred (laughs) into a kind of subservient, domesticated human form. So we are the poodle form of humans. And so a lot of people who are like adult big kids uh, don't even have an interest in their own sovereignty. They don't have an interest in joining the conversation. And I used to think, oh, you know, I used to search and search and search, like what's the secret to waking those people up? But now I've realized... It would, it would be difficult to, to wake poodles up to the reality of going to live in the forest again and running with wolves. Not all of them want to do that. Uh, my friend Shailene Woodley, um, she's an actress in Hollywood, and she did the film series Divergent. And there's a sort of, you know, kind of our cheesy coming-of-age action sort of series, but, but with a really interesting underlying theme. And that theme is about this idea of individuals who are divergent, hmm. who, can't, who can't be imprinted with the... Um, the taboos of that society. And I think some of us are divergent. So some of us are like that. We, even though we were bred in an environment of domesticity, some of us still have some kind of feral or wild quality that can be awoken. And some people in my, my experience don't seem to have it. So I've really focused in on just kind of working with the individuals who are easily awoken or who are desired. It's like, Another metaphor, you know, and I know it's cheesy to bring this one up, but it's it, it's such an important story of our time is is from the film The Matrix, where you know Neo has this sense, he has this feeling that something's not right about the reality he's in, and he wants to know more, and he's sort of looking, 
You know, he's sort of looking and Morpheus comes and he he enlightens him to what's actually happening around him. And I think there's a lot of us, that's the character I'm interested in, is that person who knows something's off and they're looking for what it is. And what it is, in my opinion, and I know a lot of people would, would have differing opinions, but in my opinion, the thing that's not right is this is not what are we are biologically designed for we're not biologically designed to live in houses mm. we're not biologically designed to eat processed kibble we're not biologically designed for 40 hour work weeks we're not biologically designed and this is most important for a hierarchical environment with um you know rulers and a police force and a military state and that's not what we're designed for we're designed for an environment of 35 to 50 interrelated individuals who survive together as sovereigns who've chosen to stick together to meet their survival needs and who come together into larger groups uh, who share a sort of a language and a, a creation story we're designed for a tribal environment and it's exceptionally displeasing to us to live this way. So we all have a, and that's why we need to legislate it so much. And that's why there's so many taboos. And that's why there's so many fences. Uh, it's essentially, and I mean that metaphorically, it's essentially to keep us living a way that's not natural to us. So, well, the fences um, aren't just metaphorical. I don't know how yeah. much you overlap with uh, rewilding at the ecological system perspective. Are you familiar with George Monboit, who wrote the Mm-mm. book Feral? No. Okay. Well, he talks about rewilding all the time, but not on the individual level, but at the ecosystem level. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he it, he doesn't have a desire to try to recreate the landscape or the ecosystems that existed in the past. He just wants rewilding to be about resisting the urge to control nature. He wants it to find its own way, which is the way that it's always been until mm-hmm. humans started to radically interfere with um, water where it flows, how it flows, uh, where we build, what we build, all these kinds of things, legislation in your hands. So I, I was kind of curious about the, the overlap, if there was any, between rewilding the way you think about it and rewilding that others, like George Monboy, thinks about it. But since, uh, since there's not a good overlap there, there are a couple things that I love that you talk about that we are designed to do. You've mentioned it a little bit as well. The first one is um, water, which is the way that I came into you. I'm going to link to a couple of podcast episodes in the show notes, yours and others, but uh, that Model Health Show, Sean Stevenson, episode 24, where I first came across you two years ago. This was just a slap in the face <laughs> about water, cool. about the con- this concept of processed water, versus natural whole water, which I think you talk about in the first 15 minutes. And I thought, wait a second, wait, wait a second. Mm. Water is processed and I may not be drinking the best water available for me. I thought the stuff that came out of the tap was awesome. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, well, let me give a little background too, just a, you know, a, qu- a quick background piece, which is that I really believe in this approach of four elements, just like so many of our ancestors did. And this idea that it's antiquated, I think, is um, a little silly because it's not an antiquated idea. When we talk about four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, we're talking about four states of matter. We're talking about solids, liquids, gases, and plasma. So you know, today, that's how we'd refer to them. In the past, it was called earth, water, air, and fire. And each one is a nutritional component we need. So earth, you could think of all the foods that grow up out of soil and we need to eat those. Water, the water we drink, air, the air we breathe, plasma, the light we need from the sun to make vitamin D and serotonin and melatonin and regulate our internal clock and all of those. We need nutrition from all four elements. We tend to think of nutrition as food. And when we think about food, um, we tend to leave out 
these other essential elements. And so we get so obsessed and myopic about just what we eat. But when we talk about food, we now understand processed food is less valuable to our bodies. It brings less nutrition to our bodies than processed food. And um, if you think about it, that at some point had that idea had to have been introduced. People didn't realize that at first. Um, and there's a lot of backstory to that, which we don't need to get into now. But right now, the conditions in our environment with water, it's sort of similar to the time before people realized processed food wasn't a good idea. So we're in that place now. And this idea of processed food, I'm, uh, processed water, I'm hoping that, that this work I'm doing can help to um, bring that into the conversation about water. Because right now, we're hearing a lot of take back the tap kind of ideas. Um, we're hearing a lot of controversy around bottled waters. It's almost like people don't know where to go and we know we need water. So let me just lay this out real quick. In nature, the way water comes to us as, is as an H2O matrix that contains a lot of dissolved minerals and gases and organisms. And all through history, when we've talked about water, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about water from the ecosystem. And we have needs. We have needs, nutritional needs developed around that kind of water because we evolved around, we adapted to that kind of water. Today, what people are drinking is mostly processed water. So it's either bottled processed water, filtered processed water, or straight tap water. What I would point out about tap water is that first and foremost, it has to come from somewhere. So it's going to come from a reservoir, or it's going to come from a well, and then it gets processed at a plant where they add an antibiotic to it. We call that chlorine. And of course, we add that because the piping that brings the water to us is often mixed with contaminants from sewage and things like that. And so in order to keep fecal bacteria out of the water, they add an antibiotic. Chlorine, just like in a pool. I used to lifeguard at a pool, and what I would notice is that chlorine eats things apart, like the swimsuits of the swimmers over the course of a season. So it's a bleach and it sort of corrodes things, but also kills bacteria. Now, I'm not saying we don't need that in the water coming out of the tap because otherwise a lot of cities would would have contaminated water. But the question is, do we need to drink water like that? The other additive, of course, fluoride, which is a serious one because it interferes with our IQ. We know that fluoride can actually reduce the IQs of children. In addition, it hardens our pineal gland and um, it doesn't just get into our teeth, it gets into all our bones creating um, osteo and dental fluorosis, which makes bones more brittle and teeth more brittle. So, um, so this stuff is like something we probably don't need in our water. And then in addition to that, one of the things people don't know is that these plants are also putting phosphoric acid and sodium hydroxide into water in order to regulate the pH so that uh, minerals don't fall out of solution and attach themselves to the pipes. And so people are drinking a chemical cocktail when they get their water. This is processed water. This is not natural water. People drinking water out of bottles one thing they need to know is that that water has usually been through several filtration methods. It's been through UV processing. It's been through all these things that reduces its minerality and actually uh, pulls all the gases out of the water, which give flavor profile. If you think about gases in in a beverage, it's like if you have a beer, let's say you have a beer, uh, it's got dissolved carbon carbonic acid in it right mm-hmm. carbon dioxide and when that comes out that beer is flat same with like a soda well natural spring water contains gases and that's part of what gives it a good mouthfeel it's part of why we want to drink it but the water that we're drinking in bottles has had that taken out and sometimes added back so it's heavily processed in that way all the organisms that are in there those soil and water-based organisms that we now know influence our brain chemistry influence our serotonin levels they've all been removed in that water 
water has been essentially made shelf stable. So if they didn't do this, water has algae in it and water would turn green on the shelves. And so they remove all that. Well, sometimes the things we remove are the most important. So if you think about water in a bottle, it's sort of akin to the difference between whole wheat and wheat that's been processed into white flour. What we end up with is these bottles of H2O, and that's just not what's found in the natural environment. So I've created a website called findaspring.com, and that's just a directory of springs that people can go visit and fill their own bottles. And we just have tens of thousands of people now that we've supported with this with this website who go and just gather their water naturally at springs. I love this idea of the modern hunter-gatherer. And so I love promoting this idea of gathering your own stuff when you can. That might be plants, that might be animals, and in this case, it's water. I've been doing that practice for over a decade now, and I just can't imagine living any other way. I watch, I look at people drinking water with chlorine and fluoride or plastic dissolved in it from the bottles that it's been put in, and I just can't imagine making 60% of my body out of this like toxic processed water and then thinking that the food that I'm eating is so healthy and not really thinking about, hey, I'm not made out of 60 or 70% food. I'm made out of 60 or 70% water. The water we drink is really important. I know you've said as well, if you're, I know you go, you fly different places to speak or to do workshops or just to have different experiences, personal experiences on your own. And you try to bring in the water with you. If you absolutely have to, you'll drink it. It's not like you see this thing as something that's going to kill me today, but it's certainly suboptimal in a lot of ways. And you've, you've been really good on, I really like the terminology that you use around it as well. You have a podcast episode on rewild yourself about why I forage water. I've never mm. heard anybody use that word forage for water. You normally think of foraging for mushrooms or foraging for crickets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like the way just the terminology and the language that you're using around it as well uh, and expanding tr- nutrition, as you've talked about. It's not just food. It's your water. It's your community. There's other sources of nutrition that we have. And I just want to also say I started drinking spring water, findaspring.com. I remember hearing about it a couple years ago, and I went online. I went there, and I realized, well, crap. There's 15-minute drive from my house the Friedrich Miller Spring in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. It's been there for decades. It's just public use. I can just drive up. It runs all year round, even when it's freezing here in Minnesota. And I can just get the literal best water anywhere. On What's your experience is- been like doing that? I'm curious how that's felt for you. And not just on the physical and nutritional level, but also on maybe the metaphysical and kind of spiritual level too. It feels really good to be able to source more of my own nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't necessarily do that around food, although my wife and I, we have a couple of garden plots in our backyard. We're not permaculturists, at least not yet. We don't have an aquaponic system going in our basement. <laughs> so as far as supplying yeah. myself with things that my body absolutely needs to function, to function optimally, water is the easiest and the best thing that I can do. So the ability to just go there and I take my 21-gallon glass bottles and I also bring my boys as frequent as I can. I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And I go and I tell them, guys, we could walk three blocks to Whole Foods and pay eight and a half dollars for a gallon in a plastic jug. Or we could go here and get it free and have a connection mm-hmm. with this thing that we're putting into our body. Uh, and that, that connection spot, that's sourcing it, seeing it come out, having conversations with other people, the folks that I've met, and maybe this is just my personality because I'm a pretty outgoing guy and I like chatting with people, but I've just met some of the most dynamite people Mm -hmm. uh, alternating. Hey, it's your turn. It's your turn. You've got these six gallon jugs and I'll be there processing, uh, going through my routine for an hour 
having conversations with people, having my boys wander through the creek and there's a little nature path up the hill where we can overlook around our surrounding area. It's just really on a, a number of levels. It's been a wonderful experience. Uh, and and I kind of get a little bit nervous, actually, when I'm down to, say, two jugs and I realize I go through it pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, am I going to be able to get back there before, yeah. before I'm out? Oh. And for clarity for people listening, you know, we're talking about springs where the actual aquifers waters uh, overflow emerges at the surface. So we're not talking about drinking out of creeks and streams, but we're talking about where the water bubbles up from the ground and that water is free of contaminants, both in almost always free of contaminants uh, industrially. So that would be like chemicals from, let's say, fertilizers or factories and things like that, but also free of contaminants in the sense of bacteriological and protozoal and stuff like that. So um, this water is extremely clean. So I'm not talking about going and drinking out of the lake. We're talking about drinking out of clean water, the same kind of water that springs water companies want you to think they're bottling up, but unfortunately they're not. And that's a whole nother story. But so I want to mention that. I also want to say, you know, for a lot of recent human history, there's been this idea that you can't pray to your creator directly. You know, you had to go to a priest and he would pray on your behalf, right? And I think that's an interesting metaphor um, because there's this idea of getting, you know, in all through human history and the history of all other species, you just go direct to mother earth to get your needs met. Now, we go to a store and we buy our needs. And there's something really lost there in my opinion. And I think that like more than anything with water, because the thing is, is that your blood is mostly water. It's blood plasma. And the way you replenish your plasma, the way you make blood is, you know, uh, the way you make blood plasma is you drink the, you drink water and that tops off your blood plasma. So the idea of buying your blood plasma to me is really creepy. It's like so, it's like a dystopian science fiction movie where the slaves are so enslaved that they don't know they're enslaved and then they think they have to purchase their blood. And in order to do that, they have to work these jobs that they don't really like in order to just get enough money to buy their blood. That to me is the darkest, pl- that's, we have reached the darkest place in human history, in my opinion, even though there's a current meme that we're in the sort of greatest enlightenment ever. I don't think when you look at our actual lifestyle that it actually is true. So I think there's opportunities for more freedom than has existed in a long time. But on average, most people are not experiencing that. They're well, how, buying their blood. How else are you bypassing buying things that you need to survive, to thrive? Water's one of them. I know that you are recently into hunting and you're very much into for- foraging in terms of the way that we traditionally think about foraging. Whatever is live and available and healthy for you in your environment how else, Daniel, are you just saying, you know what, I don't need a literal or metaphorical middleman to be my intermediary between this thing and this other thing that I need to survive, to thrive? Are there other categories of things? Yeah, that, you know, like one, of the, one of the ways I've been really blessed in the upbringing that I mentioned before, which was traumatic then and it's now like a blessing, is that um, I didn't really go to doctors and dentists growing up, very rarely. So I, I didn't get that imprint that uh, whenever I have a problem, I need to run to the doctor. And I know so many people and that's their lifestyle. And what a lot of people don't realize is that most of the pharmaceuticals that are in use today are sourced from, or at least um, the chemical compounds were first found and isolated in plants. And I think there's this idea that herbalism is this fringe thing, you know, when in reality, and, and one of the ways we get tricked is we call it alternative medicine, which is a lie. Because alternative is just made of two words, alter, native. So when you alter what's native, you create what's alternative. Well, how can the native medicine, which is herbalism, be alternative? Mm-hmm. 
It's not. Modern medicine is alternative. And it's only been around for 100 years. So it's like modern medicine is the alternative medicine. The medicine that's worked all through human history for 200,000 years, got us here today, is plant-based. Yeah, and Daniel, where's the double-blind scientific study? And there are so many. That's the thing. I know, I know. There are, right? That's the <laughs> thing that people don't realize is that there are. They just are. have to look for it. Their doctor doesn't have that because their doctor gets taken out to steak dinners by drug reps, right, from Pfizer. So, so one of the ways is that I'm able to make medicine off my landscape uh, through herbalism and through very basic herbalism, really easy to learn. And that looks like figuring out what I need uh, based on my particular ailment or my particular sort of constitutional shift that I need and gathering plants and making them into medicine in the form of teas or dried powdered herbs or in putting them into alcohol and making tincture. So I've been able to treat myself with herbalism for years and years, not just treat myself, but actually prevent a lot of illnesses that are very common. So I've been able to to really fortify myself with herbalism. Um, another way is gathering plants that I can eat. So um, this year I've been real busy foraging um, my vegetables. Um, and soon as we reach sort of autumn, it'll be into a lot of the fruits as well as they come into ripeness. So bypassing having to buy a lot of that stuff, uh, hunting and fishing, which is providing a lot of my protein needs this year. And then also foraging for mushrooms so that I'm at able to add fungi into my diet. So when I look at diet from the big picture perspective, I see that humans traditionally eat from four, no matter what fad diets are out there from paleo to veganism, and those are all fad diets. They're all brand new. But when we look at the human diet throughout time, so we look at the human diet based on the last 200,000 years of our evolution, we see we eat from four kingdoms of life. We eat animals, we eat plants, we eat fungi, and interestingly, we eat bacteria because we eat fermented foods, mm. traditionally fermented foods. So the way that I'm bypassing that is I'm able to ferment my own foods at home, making my own kind of sauerkrauts and things like that, lacto-fermented vegetables. Uh, I'm able to uh, hunt and fish, so get my animal foods. I'm able to, to gather mushrooms to get my fungal foods, and I'm able to, um, of course, get gather plants as well, so for medicine and for food. Um, that's not 100% of my diet, though. That's kind of the, the, the end state I'm after. That's the goal, if you will. But, uh, but in addition to doing that, I like to work with my local farmers as well and, and get local foods. Now, I want to point this out. My work is not just for people who are willing to hunt and forage. So I've done a lot of work to put together strategies for people who live in urban environments to put together a sort of pseudo or mock hunter-gatherer diet from within Whole Foods, from within the local farmer's market, from in the supermarket, because that's most people. And most people aren't, do not have the ability to do what I'm able to do out here in the sort of backwoods of Maine. So my interest is in not just the hunting and gathering, but how do we create a hunter-gatherer lifestyle for modern people too? Because without that, this isn't really a realistic approach. Where You're a mentor to a lot of people in terms of how to do that. Where have you found your mentors that have taught you the difference between this type of fungus and this type of fungus? And this one is going to kill you. This one is going to heal you. Where do you find these folks who are, have made this huge impact and have allowed you to just now natively do the kinds of things and know the kinds of things that you know? Yeah. And I mean, obviously that's a really ongoing process too, because I'm constantly working with people. Um, you know, for me, my life having grown up really without effective parents and without aunts and uncles and grandparents, my life has been about finding mentors. Sometimes I find them in the form of a book or an audio program or a video, and sometimes they're in real life. And this is a difficult thing for me to put into words. I wish that it was as simple as like, well, here's my top 10 strategies for finding the mentors that I need. But and this is one of those things where people who are scientifically educated really struggle to 
open themselves to this. But I'll, the the true, the honest truth of this thing is, is that I follow my heart, and uh, that's my guiding principle. And if something doesn't feel the way I need it to feel, if it doesn't resonate on every level, I don't do it. You're not going to find me doing it for very long. Um, I might put up with something for a minute, but. For me, it's about following my heart, my intuition, and that's led me to where I am today. Uh, and that's led me to finding the things that I most celebrate in my life. So I don't have a direct strategy for how I find my mentors. Rather, I just follow the golden thread of beauty through my life. And that leads me to the right people. Now, I know that sounds very arcane. So realistically, like maybe that looks like Googling around local herb walks or foraging groups in your area or attending a primitive skills gathering in your area or finding out who puts on, you know, the herbal symposium in the part of the country where you live, things like that. Uh, when it comes to hunting, it's been about, you know, f- I, it's, this is difficult to put into words, Joel. It's like, well, you know what? Ra- it's, rather than rather than Googling like local hunters to take me out, what I do is I just start telling people, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who does this. And eventually that leads me to the right person. And I like that method better than following a sort of, you know, a list of strategies or a recipe. I totally get that. Uh, what was coming to mind as you were going through it is not looking for the how-to, the 10-step process to find your latest mentor for XYZ. Not really what I was going for, but it's just you talked about following your heart and your intuition. For me, that's still really difficult. Um, to at the gut, at the visceral level, I can't trust myself yet. I haven't ah, done the self you know work. What? That's the thing. That's the thing. You're right on it. Then we've got our finger on it. That is the truth. That's the difference between wildness and domesticity. Because in domestication, we're taught to um, bypass our instinct and. You know, when you're when a wild animal is not using strategies, a wild animal is functioning off that gut instinct. It's so strongly that's what preserves the life of wildness, right? But in domestication, we're taught to bypass that and use a set of strategies that have been given to us, a set of tools. And um, what you're the the rewilding process for you is like really learning to trust your instinct. What I found is that when I do that, that leads me to everything that gives me a sense of personal fulfillment. What I notice is that people who follow strategies end up in their 40s, 50s and 60s going, "Oh my god, what happened to my life? I'm not happy. I've not, they have a midlife crisis because they wake up one day and realize they have not actually done what they want to do. They've done what they thought they should do." When we follow our instinct, it leads us to the thing because our instinct is almost like the it's the guiding light of the roadmap that leads us to fulfillment. So if we don't do that, we are going to wake up one day wishing we'd lived a different way. And wow, that is the last thing I ever want to have in my life. So um, I think following your instinct is crucial. And that's what wildness is about. Well, I'm still actively cultivating my instincts better and this is going to be who knows or uncovering, or uncovering them might be might yeah. be a more effective way to say that because they're there it's not like you have to develop them they're there already you have two hundred thousand years of genetic memories in you of all of your ancestors and the way they lived on the landscape until ten thousand years ago when human domestication started so i i don't say that to be con- contrarian i just say that because that's it's there. You won't build your instinct. You'll just uncover it by doffing more and more of the ways that you've been, you know, you and then I use you as an example for all of us, the way we've been taught to live. Yeah. Or the way that we've been taught to die. 
Yeah, uh, exactly. That's one thing that I was really excited to potentially talk with you about. And one thing that my instincts are pointing me in the right direction on, I, I'm just so fascinated about conversations around death and dying right now. You've mm-hmm. written extensively. I'm going to actually link in the show notes to this podcast episode to the road wild yourself. I think it was dispatch number eight that mm-hmm. you wrote maybe a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, and there was this one section in there where you're talking about how we came to the point where as humans either were buried or were cremated. Uh, and the traditional way of just your your body exists, if there's not some kind of ritualized way that my body can return to the land, that mm-hmm. I can become a source of nutrition <laughs> for other yeah. animals, as opposed to, as you put it somewhere like, hey, if I can't have my body, then nobody can have my body. Either I'm going to burn <laughs> it or I'm going to bury it. And I read that and I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, do, why do I have to protect myself why do I have to deprive other living creatures of the sustenance of my body? So one thing that I have really, and I freaked the heck out of some of my family members, is I said, it's not legal yet, at least not here in the United States, but when I die, it's going to be in my will. I want you to find some place to just lay my body. It can be mm-hmm. like a sky burial in Tibet with, on a mountaintop, <laughs> if you got to <laughs> shoot me there, or you know, wherever it may happen to be. So uh, yeah. what I would like to do, because this is perhaps the ultimate taboo of all the things that we talk about, death and dying, what has informed your view on the way that, like, for you to be able to write that and to proclaim that, what has happened to you over, say, the last five years where has shaped how you think about death and dying? Well, you know, as a kid, I would always see cemeteries and I thought like I was, you know, was aware even as a child, like, hey, we're kind of running out of open land here. Why are we putting these dead bodies pickled in such a way that they can never break down into concrete boxes in these spaces? It just seemed like such a waste of space. And I thought about that for years and years and years. But where I'm at now today is what I see is that at the heart of domestication is the fear of death. That's the root of it. You know, I've been into hunting a lot this year and you pick up a hunting magazine, you see these ideas all the time, like conquer mother nature. Hmm. And I realized, well, there's a real hatred towards mothers here. There's this idea of like mother nature needs to be beaten, conquered. And what's again, the, the root of domestication, this fear of death is this desire to overcome nature rather than be participants in nature. If you were a participant in nature, dying wouldn't, would just, that's just part of nature. The, the synensis is of everything. That's just everything synensis. Everything eventually after its peak goes through a decline and then dies and something new emerges. And this has just always been accepted. You know, it's interesting when you, when you look at indigenous people and you sort of read about their worldview, there isn't this fear of death. There's this idea of like, this happened to my ancestors and I'll follow suit and I'll make children and they'll come up in my place on and on and on. But here there's this idea, we need life extension. We need to preserve ourselves indefinitely. And like you just said, the idea of I'll cremate myself or I'll bury myself pickled in formaldehyde is that I won't even allow organisms to consume me and put me back into the soil's hummus because um, that's just too, mm, I need to be something special, different, isolated from nature. So not only do we live our lives isolated from nature, but we're trying to keep ourselves from being food. Um, Ultimately, it's really interesting when you, I broke down a black bear this week, you know, so went from a black bear alive to a to you know sausage meat in my freezer and in that process you just can't help but think like this is what i'm made out of too like i'm just meat you know i'm just meat this is really interesting and by breaking down you mean you hunted a black bear hunted killed hunted killed and then processed as in processed an animal just make sure that people understand what we're talking about 
Yeah, yeah, broke them down as as in like uh, went through the entire process of getting human food from a black bear. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, but in that you kind of you go th- from the oh this feels really sad. There's like a dead bear to like once the skin's off and you're dealing with red meat, it's like oh, this just looks like food now. Um, but ultimately, like I know that if something took my skin off and broke me down, that's me too. And there are all these organisms right now on my skin that the second I'm dead are going to start eating me. Some of them are trying to eat us now. You know, we're just part of the ecosystem too. Um, and I think when we start to rewild and we make peace with death, really start making peace with death, we free up so much of our life force because I don't think people realize how much energy they spend every day fearing death, how much energy they spend every day fighting death, which is like, talk about an inevitable loss, <laughs> you know, like a fight you can't win. So uh, I wrote that dispatch. That was part of my Rewild Yourself magazine. I wrote that dispatch eight just to sort of say and proclaim and actually to really work through my own psychological stuff about this too, just to say, you know what, I'm okay with the fact that I'm going to die. In fact, I'm really willing to embrace that. Um, and I'm not going to go through this this futile battle against the inevitable. In fact, like I really feel like that is the ultimate, that's the conclusion to a beautiful story, right? It's like I want a last chapter in a wonderful book I read, right? I don't want to like avoid that part. That's the fun, facing death is the final psychological hurdle in my opinion. So um, I know a lot of people who do a lot of the lifestyle practices I do because they want to try not to die, and I do the lifestyle practices I do because I want to really engage living. And I think part of engaging living is engaging dying. Uh, but we live in a culture with so few elders, so few wise people, and such a break in traditions. When you think about, um, I just you know kind of want to get this out there. When you think about monotheism and the religions of the world that dominate the world today, and I know that in some ways we seem to have moved past them, but they still, we haven't. They're, they very much influence our culture. If you have um, bought into a monotheistic religion, you've essentially bought into the idea that almost all your ancestors are in some kind of a hell. And so even if you know your grandma and your, your uncles and aunts and your grandpa, there's this point in your ancestry that's cut off, right? So there's this idea the whole world essentially is bought into this idea that they're cut off from their ancestors. And I think that somehow creates this tremendous fear of dying, that we don't see in indigenous people. They just seem very comfortable with the idea that this is just part of a cycle and you're just part of a cycle. And this idea also that your life force just goes back into the pool. And and I think that like the more we explore that and the more we get comfortable with that, the healthier our world's going to be because the, the neuro- part of probably the largest underlying um, factor feeding the neurosis of modern people is the fear of death and the fighting against that. Fascinating. Wow. That's just a fascinating worldview. Uh, I, and we could go into more about how you craft that and how maybe I could cultivate that myself. I am I'm wondering a little bit too, you've mentioned a number of times and I prompted you a little bit because I know all these amazing people who have helped you make who you are. Do you want to give a hat tip to somebody that you find just totally fascinating or is feeding you in the way that you absolutely need right now? Yeah. I mean, the best way to do that would be to look at my, uh, the, the people I've interviewed on my podcast. Cause it's like all of them, all of them, you know, <laughs> every single day. Um, I got to give a huge hat tip to my friend, Arthur Haynes, who, um, of all the living humans around me right now has probably influenced me the most deeply as a friend and as a mentor. Uh, he's a taxonomist, biologist, primitive skills guy in Maine, and a very good friend of mine. I mean, we're buddies, but you know, he's almost 10 years older than me and, and, you know, 
his way of thinking has influenced me a lot. Um, the list is so extensive, and a lot of these people are people no one would ever have heard of. Teachers I had as a kid, or uh, you know, random characters that I'd meet for five minutes in my childhood, but would say something that really influenced me. You know, my bear hunting mentor right now, a guy named Lawrence, who. He talks like this. He's just a man of there up here in Maine, hunt mash. But, you know, little things that he says to me that influence me so deeply. Um, but on the sort of famous character level, I got really influenced by a guy named Daniel Quinn who wrote a book called Ishmael. And that book really probably gave me some of the formative ideas about rewilding. And it was a blessing to bring him after age 80 onto my show and get to talk to him a little bit about what he's done. The author Stephen Herod Buner, the herbalist, big influence on me. Um, my friend David Wolf was a big influence on me when it came to nutrition and understanding that I could get out there and talk about those kind of things. Um, so it's just been – I could give – such an extensive list. I mean, it would take days because I didn't have parents I, you know, that were very effective. I spent my life looking for people who could kind of step in and give me a little bit of wisdom. So uh, a huge list. And ultimately, I would have been just as happy with a grandma, a grandpa, and some aunts and uncles. But in lieu of that, I've, I think I've developed the skill of finding pearls of wisdom almost anywhere I go. Almost any conversation I have, there's always something. People, everybody has something to offer, right, Joel? And I think that that's – we're in such a judgmental culture and we're in a culture that acts – has – life is emulating art right now. So what happens is you get people who act like as if they're in a sitcom. Everything is sarcasm. Everything's a joke. Everything's making fun of somebody. And people are losing the ability to extrapolate wisdom from every experience they have. So just about everyone's my mentor, even if they're, they're modeling to me what not to do. Everyone's my mentor. That, that requires a level of openness and acceptance of mindfulness that mm -hmm. just that base level, most people don't have. And yeah, some days I wake yeah. up and I question whether I've got it, whether I'm bringing yeah. my A game today or whether C's going to have to be good enough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it is hard for most folks to travel through life, but for other ways, that's just who you are. It's not mm -hmm. like they're, I'm choosing to grab a pearl of wisdom. This is just where my mind's wired and what I'm looking for. We could can, I, can I add one more piece? Can I yeah. just one more piece? Yeah. I think the underlying all this, what's really going on in my, my heart and in my worldview is um, I'm ultimately got to give all my deference to my creator. And I have no way to define that. And I don't have some book of like, here's what my creator's about or anything like that. But I have a sense, and I know a lot of us do, even though we're in a scientific environment right now, which is, creates a lot of taboos around this kind of way of thinking. Um, but I live a spiritual life. And I know that it's sort of like AA, right? Like this idea of like a higher power. I know that I, I obviously don't have the intelligence to put together the Earth's ecosystem. I don't have the intelligence to sort of keep the planet spinning properly around the sun. So whatever, whatever greater force there is, I live in deference to that. And that creates a kind of humbleness and a humility that allows you to learn from everyone around you versus the attitude today, which is the sort of um, this idea that it's an ego-driven culture we're in now. So it's like, it's kind of like the hip hop thing. You know how hip hop is like this style of music. It's, in, it's the, probably the most popular influential form of music right now. And essentially what it is, is bragging about how awesome you are. Mm. 
that attitude carried through life is a sure, it's a, just such a great way to make sure you don't learn from everything around you and everyone around you. If we go through life with this attitude of how great we are and how everything's about us, it's really hard to learn. So I think deferring to some higher power, whatever that means for you, is a really critical part of actually being open and mindful to a world full of possibility and opportunities that are all around us that we otherwise wouldn't miss out on. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned hip hop because I just did a podcast episode recently about how I deleted 90% of my hip hop MP3s. Uh, because <laughs> that was what it was about. It, it it's was a bummer because it's such a great form of music. I, well, the, the beats are amazing, amazing. I also but, love all the. T- I love conversations, so it's like I love hearing rather than just a chorus. I love hearing from people about what's going on in their lives. So I love hip hop for that. But man, the like the bragging is just like come on. You know, in indigenous cultures, the biggest taboo is bragging. Oh. That's the biggest taboo. Oh, I was going to ask you how so, but then I realized, oh boy, do we want to go down there as well? And when you <laughs> when you mentioned before, hey, can I just add one more thing? I'm like, hell yes, Daniel. You can add 10 more things if you want. Well, uh, let me add it. Let me add it then. It's this. Okay. If you come home, let's say you came home with some massive animal to feed your tribe because you were out hunting and people come and they say, you know, Joel, were you successful in your hunt? You, What you're supposed to do in an indigenous culture is kind of say, well, not not really. And then they go, well, did you see anything? Oh, maybe just one little thing. Whereas here it would be like, we want to show the picture with the 10-point buck. And yeah, I brought it home. I'm so good at this. Here's my gear, blah, blah, blah. But what you're actually supposed – it's actually – that's the, such a taboo. The biggest taboo against leadership is wanting to be a leader in an indigenous culture. So we've gone from, to the extreme opposite now where we put in power the people who most want to be in power. And we celebrate the people who brag the most. And that is uh, the antithesis of what's been natural for humans for a really long time. And I think the things we see around us from our political election that's going on right now to um, on either side of that, to our, our favorite music, to our favorite entertainment, it's all about the individual. And and I guess the, in conclusion, I think rewilding is about going from an egocentric reality back to a more ecocentric reality and not by going backwards, but actually just by bringing ourselves back to a sane baseline. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want any conclusion. In fact, I want people to <laughs> go continue to get deeper into your world. Where would you like folks to explore more of rewilding, reclaiming their sovereignty and just all of the goodness that you're putting out in the world? Well, you can go to danielvitalis.com and that will kind of give you access to my magazine, show you my podcast, which you can also find on iTunes. So the Rewild Yourself podcast is where I put out the most media. I haven't been writing or doing videos for a bit. So that's my current stuff. My Instagram feed at Daniel Vitalis. I'm probably most active communicating with people there. So hit me up there if you want to get in conversation with me. Um, And check out my store, surthrival.com. That's S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L.com. And that's a line of products that I've kind of put together to um, sort of heal and work around some of the domestication issues that happen on the physical level in our bodies. Well, thank you for helping me heal and uh, deal with some of my domestication as well. Uh, I mentioned this before we started recording, but I just want it to be public how grateful I am for you, uh, for what you're putting out in the world, and all the people that you're elevating around you, because you're right. Sure, people have heard of Deepak Chopra and Tony Robbins and maybe some of the other people that we've talked about, but the influential folks and the way, whether it's interviewing them on your podcast or just mentioning something on the fly, I love the way that you are just constantly trying to elevate others. I guess that goes back to your theme of empowerment, and it comes through in everything that you do. So thank you for sharing that on this show. Thanks for giving me a place to share, Joel. I really appreciate that. All right. Huh? 
How did that conversation impact your brain, your heart, maybe even your spirit? Are you feeling, you know, maybe you're even uh, struggling like I was from time to time to keep up with Daniel? And I can almost guarantee that you felt challenged by the few of the things that he said. Just remember, with Daniel, with me, pretty much with all my guests, we're not threatening you with doom and gloom if you don't do these things or if you are this kind of person. You know, we're really inviting you to an alternative way to think, to believe, to act, and to react, to, to trust your instincts, to make gut decisions, and to feel confident, to feel healthy and vibrant in them. Now, of course, you get to decide what resonates with you, whether you want to do it at the gut level, at the cerebral level, wherever you want that to be. I just hope that the choice to learn more about Daniel and the vibrant world that he inhabits, all these people around him, I hope it's an easy one for you. Um, Maybe even your instincts, they feel a little teeny bit sharper now after hearing what he has to say. My favorite place, I've mentioned it before, uh, to get a regular dose of Daniel is the Rewild Yourself podcast which you'll see a link to in the show notes at joelzeslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-109. But you may choose to start somewhere else first, perhaps the surthrival.com website. That's Daniel's website as well. Especially, he's got this sha-wheat discount. He's temporarily giving Smart and Simple Matters listeners. So check it out. Here's the dealio. Use the coupon code SMARTSIMPLE. That's all one word, smart, simple. When checking out at surthrival.com, when you get things like your bone broth, medicinal mushroom supplements, maybe even a grass-fed jar of ghee, you will get 10% off your order through October 19th, 2016. As for me, I get nothing, nothing but smiles. If you ever order anything from Sir Thrival, I'm just grateful to Daniel for hooking you up with the chance to get some premium products for a healthy 10% discount. Again, the coupon code is SMARTSIMPLE, and it's good for one month after this episode is published, which is September 19th, 2016. You will find a link to Sir Thrival, all the other stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more niftiness in the show notes at joelzeslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-1-0-9. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. Whether it's at the individual level like Daniel promotes or at the ecological level like George Monboit promotes, I just have one thing to say right now. Keep on rewilding. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. In addition to rewilding, I would encourage you to go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.